Welcome all, I'm Enrique Serna, and this is the KCTS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. So what is citizenship? What does it mean to you? What is patriotism? Is it viewed differently among white Americans and our communities of color? Why do some people feel that it's useless to vote, that their voice is not heard, that it really doesn't matter? Are we powerless? We're going to take up those questions and much more with Eric Liu. Eric is the founder and the CEO of Citizen University. He is a writer who contributes to a number of national publications. He is an author of several books. The most recent is A Chinaman's Chance, One Family's Journey, and The Chinese American Dream. He has served as a White House speechwriter and policy advisor for President Bill Clinton. He's a dynamic speaker, lecturer, and civic entrepreneur. And I admire him a lot because he is an idea guy with a lot of great ideas. Plus, he's shorter than me. That's hey, what I like more. You can't prove that on a podcast. <laughs> I know that. I'm just going to say, I'm putting it out there. So believe me, he's shorter than me. Plus, he has a great flat top. I love that. Nice tie. Eric Lee, welcome. Good to have you here, man. Thanks, Enrique. All great right. to be with you. Yeah. All right. So what is a civic entrepreneur? And, and how did that come about for you? Uh, you know, a civic entrepreneur is just somebody who tries to change civic life um, in ways that are creative and um, often bypassing the traditional structure of uh, institutions and organizations. Uh, I mean, if you think about an entrepreneur in business life, uh, it's very much the same idea and spirit. You see some needs that uh, are going unmet. You see an opportunity in the quote-unquote marketplace. Uh, and as, an, as a business entrepreneur, one would say, hey, I think I can fill that need. I'm going to create a little venture uh, to start, uh, you know, attacking that and uh, get, getting involved. And uh, it's just the same notion in civic life, right, where we obviously have uh, huge needs and holes. Uh, you mentioned some of them in your opening about people feeling powerless or people checking out of voting. Um, and I think uh, it requires a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit to figure out how do we uh, close those gaps. Is that something that just sort of happened for you or something that you spent some time thinking that, you know, I, I, I really want to try to create something like this. I, th I think there's a void out there. You know, I think it's a bit of both, Enrique. I, I have spent a fair amount of time in traditional politics and government. Uh, I worked in Washington, D.C. for many years and then just in my life as a citizen here in, in Washington where I've been these last 15 plus years. Um, you know, I've been engaged in a lot of different civic and political issues. Uh, uh, and so I've seen these needs and opportunities arise that are outside of what our traditional structure actually deals with. Uh, uh, you don't need me to tell you that uh, whether you're talking about D.C. or Olympia, um, you can get a level of polarization and stuckness and brokenness uh, that means that a lot of basic problems in public life are not really getting addressed, right? Uh, and so there, again, there's entrepreneurial opportunity there. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I set out X number of years ago to be a civic entrepreneur. It was more just this feeling that I had had the good fortune to have a lot of experiences in government, in the media, in different dimensions of civic life. I had a lot of knowledge. And I guess I had this very basic instinct to be a non-hoarder, <laughs> uh, not just to hold that knowledge to myself and keep it and use it to my benefit, but to think about what are creative uh, ways to actually share and disseminate and democratize some of the knowledge that I have and some of the knowledge and experience that people in the network that I've built over the years uh, have. And so uh, it was that instinct that led me to 
uh, create the organization that I now run, the nonprofit uh, called Citizen University. Uh, and our goal is just literally that. It's how do we share and democratize understanding of how power operates in civic life, how you get stuff done, how you make your voice heard. Um, you and I know something about that because we've been in one part or another of that uh, professionally. Uh, but lots of other uh, people in our city, our state, and our country, uh, you know, they're not born knowing how to do that. And so it, creating an opportunity where you can learn and practice and uh, experience that uh, uh, was a need that I felt like uh, could, uh, I could help meet. You've authored several books. You've written for publications. Obviously, I mentioned the, that you spent time, which where probably a lot of these things develop and working at the White House for Bill Clinton as a speechwriter, doing policy, all of these types of things. Um, I'm kind of curious, how, how did you end up leaving D.C. and then coming here? Yeah, I, um, I got exposed to Seattle uh, when I was working for President Clinton, and this is like late 1993, uh, the APEC conference was happening here. You may remember this, the Asia-Pacific right, Asia Economic yeah, Conference, yeah. which was a huge, huge thing in town. And I came out here with the president, uh, um, and I'll never forget, we, we uh, had a, you know, a bank of uh, rooms uh, in the Westin Hotel downtown, uh, in those towers, overlooking Elliott Bay. Um, and even though I was you know, set up in this room as an office, and it was just working all the time, um, as a, you know, writing speeches for the president, uh, I'll never forget that feeling of being in this town in the middle of that conference and this vibe of this place is it. This place has, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit, the uh, Pacific-facing uh, orientation, uh, you know, the, a, a public life here with lots and lots of Asian Americans, you know, uh, at the, you know, uh, whether in elective office or non-elective office, you know, everything from you know, mailmen and bus drivers to governors and, you know, county executives. Uh, and I just thought, wow, this place is incredibly dynamic and exciting to me. And I set the intention really then uh, that this is where I'd love to come out. Like, I, I loved being in D.C. and I loved learning and doing what I was doing there, uh, working for the president. Uh, but I never had a notion that I would stay in D.C. forever. Um, I wanted to put down roots somewhere where I could feel like there was opportunity to help shape that environment. And uh, uh, Seattle spoke to me very uh, clearly then. So it took me a few more years to finish in DC and finish going to graduate school, to law school. Um, but I'd set the intention then and uh, came out here in 2000. Did you ever practice law? I didn't. I, the closest I came to it was a summer job I did here in Seattle uh, at Perkins Coie, oh, wow. uh, the big firm downtown, um, which was a great summer and a great uh, experience. But I, you know, I went to law school um, at, the, at the outset with the intention of not practicing. I went to law school um, because I'd spent so much time in Washington, in, in D.C., around people who had been trained as lawyers uh, but weren't necessarily practicing law. They might have been elected officials or chiefs of staff or cabinet secretaries or reporters or, you know, editors. And in all cases, the legal education had given them something like another pair of glasses. Like they were able to see issues frame arguments uh, with a clarity and a focus uh, um, that other people didn't have. And I thought, I want that pair of glasses. I like that way of seeing and thinking. Um, and so law school for me was about learning that way of seeing and thinking and, uh, and in a way being in kind of graduate education generally with a focus on law. But I took courses. I went to Harvard for law school. I took courses from their great African-American studies department, uh, their great sociology department, you know, people in political science and, um, you know, philosophers like Michael Sandel. 
um, you know, so people from all different uh, domains, uh, uh, but with, a, as I say, kind of a major in law. When you came to Seattle um, and, and settled down here, set some roots here, one of the things that you, you did create in the very beginning was a, an organization called Guiding Lights. Mm -hmm. and, and that really focused around this whole idea of kind of mentoring people yes. and, and giving uh, experiences to others. Uh, how did that then take, how did you take that and then it evolved to Citizens University? Yeah, great question. Um, Guiding Lights Network, uh, uh, the organization, grew out of a book that I'd written in 2005 called Guiding Lights about these life-changing transformative mentors from all different walks of life. And um, after that book came out, we thought, why just stop there with these stories that are in the book, uh, much less all the stories that were on the cutting room floor of the writing of the book. You know, I'd spent time with hundreds of these remarkable change agents and uh, guiding lights from different realms. And so we created this organization that started running this conference every year where we brought together um, people like that to come share and practice the different elements of what made them such effective, transformative leaders, teachers, and mentors in different walks. And that work of that organization, the Guiding Lights Network, um, over a few years, everything happened very organically. What we realized a couple of years in was it's not just about the pair of mentor-mentee, right? It's not just about that dyad. Really, when you think seriously about the art of mentoring, you're looking at the community context in which mentoring happens, right? You're looking about, uh, you know, what is the structure of neighborhood or ethnicity or faith or school or tribe or whatever it is where values get passed on or not get passed on, right? Uh, what we realized is we were really teaching the art of community building and creating community. And about four or five years into this work of uh, guiding lights and focusing on mentorship, um, we started to make this explicit, pi explicit pivot uh, to, this is about citizenship as much as it is about mentorship. The art of being a citizen in the sense of, I'm gonna be a contributing member of a community who feels like my job is to pass on what I know, to be mindful of the ways in which I'm being shaped by others around me, uh, and to co-create you know, a healthier and stronger web of trust and obligation, right? Um, and it was about five years in that we realized, hey, this is what we're really about. And so we outright changed the name uh, to Citizen University and made our focus much more sharply uh, about teaching the elements of being an effective uh, powerful uh, contributor to civic life. And um, that change in focus has really been a, a great, you know, it's opened up a great channel of energy because I think that's where a lot of the vibe and a lot of the feeling was. But uh, when you name it like that and help crystallize it, uh, it gets really exciting. You talk a lot these days about power mm -hmm. or about the lack thereof power and that I think many people feel, as I, as I said in the open here, that they don't have a voice, so they don't feel like they, even if they vote, that it matters at all. I don't know how many times I've heard that from someone. Um, and also that uh, even if they were to get involved in any kind of civic effort, school board, whatever, that they they just don't feel like they can make any kind of difference. And But you're trying to preach to them that that is not the case at all. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the, the important thing is number one, to acknowledge the reality of that feeling and the reasons why that feeling is there. The reason why lots of people feel powerless is that we are in the midst of this three, four decade 
unwinding of the American social contract, right? We're in the midst of this period of incredibly uh, radical inequality and concentration of wealth and opportunity. And when you get that kind of economic inequality, it begets political inequality, right? Which then feeds more economic inequality. You get this vicious circle going. So, you know, it's a real thing that more people feel more powerless in American life. Uh, I, I don't want to deny that rea the reality of that feeling or even the fundamental underlying uh, truth of it. At the same time, I think that what we've got to remember is uh, two things. Number one, um, that what's made this country work is that precisely in times like this, um, lots of everyday citizens have remembered, hey, actually, if I and you and a few of us uh, and a few others get together, we actually can change things. Uh, and, you know, that was true the last time we had something like this kind of gilded age, um, which gave rise to the progressive movement, the progressive era, right, 100 plus years ago, uh, where people, and, and, you know, the inequality there was at least as severe, in fact, more severe, uh, and the privation was more severe then. But there were people who organized, workers and immigrants and newcomers and others who were outside the circle of power then, uh, and they organized and they found power in numbers. They found power in ideas. They found power in, um, you know, just the, uh, the, the, the kind of changing of social norms about what was okay, right? Um, I think we're in exactly that kind of moment right now. Even though it looks dark and it looks like, oh gosh, you know, we're being run by plutocrats and everything, the game is so totally rigged. Look around, like start nationally, look around. And again, this is a, across the left and the right, both Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party were phenomena of the same origin, this frustration uh, with how rigged the game was, uh, but also the sense that we can do something about it, right? Black Lives Matter today is absolutely uh, uh, an instance of this phenomenon. People saying, as rigged as the criminal justice system is, uh, and as abusive as policing has become in many cities in this country, we can do something by changing norms, using social media, and organizing around that, right? Um, the $15 Now movement uh, here in Seattle, right? Uh, you have movements right now. That's, uh, and in education, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, even if I vote for the school board or whatever, everything's messed up. Look, the fact that we are in this country now, the pendulum is swinging away from our obsession with standardized testing. We are moving away from um, an over-reliance on the measurable stuff, um, you know, in, in these exams and that overemphasis there, that didn't happen by accident. That happened because across left and right, in lots and lots of localities around this country that webbed up to a nationwide movement, citizens started saying, enough, right? And that's teachers and students at Garfield High School, as well as elected officials who are Republicans and Democrats. And, uh, you know, I look at these things that are going on right now, and I say, there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of bottom-up energy. The key now, the second thing, though, is to remember power and learning how to exercise power is like anything. It's like any muscle. It requires some exercise. It requires some practice. It requires a little bit of training in, you know, how you do these exercises so you don't hurt yourself, right? Uh, or, 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 or do something foolish. And, uh, and so a lot of the work we do at Citizen University is literally just breaking down the elements of power, what it is, what forms it takes, um, and using different case studies like the ones that I've described, even from our contemporary moment here, much less from American history, about how different people in different ways find ways to exercise power and how you can apply those case studies to your own life, uh, your own life in your neighborhood or your community, right? Uh, so 
Um, you know, my message is not one of eat your vegetables. My message is not one of Pollyanna, like, oh no, everything's great, right? My message is simply, uh, there's no choice. Uh, when things are bad as they are right now, there is just no choice but to uh, equip ourselves with the literacy in power that's going to allow us to rewrite uh, a new social contract. What do you think is, I guess, the worst thing going on right now? I mean, is it income inequality? Is it the problems with a justice system that many feel is unfair, particularly if you're African-American or from a person, you're a person of color? Uh, or is it those that feel that our whole moral standing in this country and the world is falling apart? Which one? Well, I don't know if I would point to one of them as the worst, although, um, you know, I, I do think that uh, income inequality and concentration of wealth undergirds everything else. Um, it feeds the anxiety and the fear that, be, that makes our politics more polarized and fragmented. Um, uh, but it also, as I said earlier, when a smaller and smaller number of people have economic power, that same set of, you know, small set of people end up having outsized political voice, right? You can have presidential candidates now um, who don't particularly feel like they have to speak to large numbers of voters and citizens uh, so long as they've got a super PAC or a sugar daddy who's a billionaire who's willing to uh, uh, underwrite them, right? Um, and, you know, take that at every scale. That's true at the levels of state and city politics as well. Um, so inequality is the baseline reality that is stretching the promise of our democracy to the breaking point. Uh, that said, the other thing I do think is foundational um, is this great reckoning that we are having as a country in very painful, fitful, often um, uh, uh, unarticulated ways around race uh, and who we are. Who is us when we talk about us, right? We're undergoing this massive tectonic demographic shift. People say, well, you know, year 2040, we will be a majority people of color country, right? Um, that may be true, and that is visible more every day in our popular culture. You turn on the TV, in our politics, you look at who's running for office um, in the news. But the reality is that even though in 2040, demographically, we may be a majority people of color country, we will still not be, uh, when it comes to who has power, who has voice, who has economic clout, um, we will still not be a majority people of color country in those terms, right? And so we have this great reckoning right now where um, this shift is both creating anxiety, I think, among a lot of people who are white today um, about what the future is going to hold. Um, it's creating both frustration and hope among a lot of communities of color, whether it's African-Americans for whom basic promises of a civil rights movement from 50 years ago remain unfulfilled. Voting Rights Act is 50 years old as you and I sit here today, uh, and yet through a lot of the old Confederacy today, uh, as well as other jurisdictions, you see a renewed push to restrict access to the ballot, right? And it's already been chipped away at And it's been point. chipped away at uh, by, by legislators and politicians right. as well as by the courts. Uh, so there's a lot of that kind of anxiety and frustration. And out of all of this turbulence, I think one of the big challenges we've got that connects back to inequality is how do we sustain a coherent sense of common cause as a country? How do we sustain a sense that we are, in fact, one nation? We are, in fact, an unum that comes out of the pluribus, right? Um, that, that American idea is not self-executing. It requires you and me uh, to be making some affirmative efforts to stitch this thing together, right? And that is, 
um, that's that's not just about again uh, a Pollyanna song about how great America is. That's about facing our history, facing ourselves, facing the reality today of criminal justice system, the reality of how um, all of our undocumented friends and neighbors uh, and family members are contributing to American life and yet still don't get to be fully uh, seen as members of American life. Um, we've got to find ways to be uh, embracing inclusion, not out of niceness, but out of a recognition that we have no choice, that uh, if we fail to do it, then the whole promise of this country uh, falls flat. And the promise of this country that, you know, that's how we got here to yeah. begin with, you know, if we don't do something about that, but yet we fight about that so much. And I think fear does seem to be such a big issue, particularly when we talk about race. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, f look, I, I think it, it is one of the most important things that's happening right now, and it creates a lot of fear and anxiety and uncertainty, is that the idea of whiteness and the idea of Americanness are getting delinked, right? Really, from the beginning of this country's history till fairly recently, whiteness and Americanness were essentially synonymous, right? So as recently as when you and I were growing up and little kids, if you talked about, you know, what's an American, you know, if my immigrant parents or yours said, you know, uh, someone is American, what they kind of meant was someone was white, right? And that was just in public life, in the baked-in assumptions of our culture. That's not the case anymore, right? Uh, and it's not just because we have a black president. Uh, it's not just because you and I are having this conversation, you know, Enrique Serna talking to Eric Liu, you know, in this podcast. And uh, it, it's not just these things. It's that more widely people are recognizing that there is a way to be American that is inclusive of people who have called themselves white, but has to be inclusive of far more, right? Uh, but there's also a way to be white uh, that is about something beyond just defining oneself as against the people who are outside the circle of whiteness, right? Uh, and I think we've got a reckoning to do in this country with what does whiteness mean uh, and how do we, uh, in a sense, re-embrace an idea of Americanness uh, that allows us not to do some kind of melting pot where everybody's differences just get melted away and obliterated, but to understand we are all hybrids. Even people who think of themselves as white, even somebody who thinks, my family's been here 10 generations, you know, and I'm European American down to the core. I, I don't care if you are in this country, you are a hybrid, right? You are eating foods, listening to music, <laughs> singing songs, quoting speeches, uh, sharing ideas that come from every other part of the planet, that come from people in this country who come from every other part of the planet. There is no purity of whiteness. There is no purity of Asianness. There is no purity of blackness. We are hybrids in a way that we haven't been so willing to see. Uh, and I think what makes this period super exciting, but also super scary, is that we have to confront that reality right. now. And it's truly an American issue and problem it an is. American story. This is a great you know? problem to have. Yeah, right? it is. They're, not rec they're not reckoning with this set of challenges in China, right? I always talk about how, um, look, China's going gangbusters and maybe at some point in the next decade or so, their GDP will surpass that of ours uh, and China will get to wave the flag that says we're number one economically. So what, right? We in the United States retain this at least potential competitive advantage, which I would put simply this way. America makes Chinese Americans, right? China does not make American Chinese. China is not interested in, does not have as part of their operating system, the idea of taking people from other parts of the world, and at least in theory, 
integrating them into their society and allowing that integration to change the society itself. In theory, that's what we have here. But emphasis on in theory, right? It's only if we don't blow it, if we don't succumb to xenophobia, if we don't succumb to anti-immigrant sentiment, if we don't succumb to a feeling that just because African-Americans want more voice that that, that somehow um, means that uh, you know, there's hatred toward whites. No, it just means that people want to be included, right? If we don't succumb to those things and we don't blow it, then we have something that's potentially a great and deep hybrid advantage. And I like to think that we're not any less patriot, patriotic than, you know, I'm Mexican-American, yeah. than someone that is white American. Or, because I think that sometimes that has been something that, that people question that too, hmm. you know? Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is, you know, the, the, the language of patriotism has gotten very bound up with both political ideology and race, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know what? I, I think this is bad on everybody, right? I mean, over the last 40 years, the right has grabbed patriotism, but also the left has surrendered it. The left has walked away from the language of patriotism. And um, I, I think that, you know, if you are progressive, um, uh, but if you're a person of color, whether you're conservative or progressive, um, in the terms that you and I are talking about here, about what this American experiment can be, you absolutely ought to be laying claim to patriotism. True patriotism isn't about jingoism or nationalism or xenophobia or chest thumping. True patriotism says this country has a creed and we're not quite living up to it. And my job is to push us to live up to it. Right. That's patriotism. Um, you know, to, to, to put it in another term, it's not my country right or wrong. It's to quote this guy, Carl Schurz, who was a U.S. senator from Illinois, a German immigrant 100 years ago. Uh, my country, when right to be kept right, when wrong to be set right. Right. Everybody owns a piece of that, whether you are you're descended from Europeans or Asians or, uh, you know, Hispanics or wh whatever it might be. Right. Um, and I think that uh, um, creating a, a conversation about patriotism um, that isn't about whiteness, that isn't about conservatism, but is simply about are we pushing each other to live up to our creed? And we can do that from different ethnic backgrounds. We will do that from different ideological backgrounds. We will disagree on things, uh, but we're all aiming to close that gap between our creed and our actual practice. How do you think Black Lives Matter has um changed or affected uh, the whole idea of power and about making a statement in the community. Even, I think, uh, among many African-Americans, I've heard some just confusion about that whole thing, about, you know, yeah, it's great. We need to have that voice out there. Uh, others feeling that, well, they're not, they're not quite sure about it. How do you see? Uh, I think Black Lives Matter is a... Uh, is a great thing in our political ecosystem, period, full stop. I don't, think, I don't think it's on Black Lives Matter to solve all issues of African-American citizenship or advocacy. But I think that this movement, uh, this, you know, what, has be, what began as a spontaneous self-organizing movement of people and now has just become this cultural touchstone, um, it matters for two deep reasons. Number one, it is really putting to the fore a lot of the realities of our criminal justice system uh, and the associated realities of deep structural institutionalized racism um, across the board in corporate America, in our education institutions, in housing policy, in economic policy. 
Um, and just being able to name that in a way that is um, direct, uh, I, I think, is a welcome and necessary uh, thing in our political debate. Um, but the second reason why I think Black Lives Matter uh, matters uh, is because it sets a template or it extends a template for citizen organizing in this age right now, right? Um, Black Lives Matter is of a piece. I mean, they might not like to hear this, but they are of a piece with the Tea Party. They are of a piece with <laughs> Occupy. They are of yeah. a piece with the Arab Spring. They are of a piece with uh, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. There are these movements occurring right now, uh, partly because social media allows it and enables it, and partly because we are in a time where hierarchies are breaking down and people bottom up are wanting to have their voices heard. We are in an age where people are organizing and bypassing what you are, quote unquote, allowed to do and say, right? So if Black Lives, Matters, uh, if Black Lives Matter does things in ways that are sometimes disruptive uh, or discomforting uh, or untraditional, um, that's a part of our moment right now, right? And I think everybody in civic life, right, left, or center, um, has to embrace that this is part of the full broad palette of what citizen power looks like. Now, I do think that Black Lives Matter has both a, a need and an opportunity now, right, uh, to begin to pivot as they've begun to from the catalyzing of protest uh, into really uh, understanding the machinery of power and changing that machinery of power. Right, in, to in get something done, to get something... Sure, yeah. right? I mean, look, the criminal justice system um, it, it boils down to policy choices. And who decides what choices we make about sentencing? Who decides what choices we make uh, about policing? Who decides what choices we make? Um, you know, let's take a very specific instance of Ferguson, right? In Ferguson, Missouri, uh, yes, it has mattered and has been important that there have been bottom-up, organized Black Lives Matter and other movements and protests to shine a light uh, on the structural, long-standing injustices in, in that community and surrounding communities. And they just had a city council election, right? Uh, and uh, it was time there, an opportunity there, and in the next election coming up to figure out, okay, how do we start mobilizing people to vote, to change the composition of this council, not because the council has a magic wand and will make everything okay, but because that council is going to make decisions about policing and about uh, you know criminal justice and, and incarceration policies that will ripple out and that speak directly to the initial complaints and causes that we were organizing and petitioning about. Right. So you've got to understand how do you move that machinery? How do you get and mobilize and organize people to change a city council? Right. That is not dirty stuff. That is not. Uh, stuff that is, uh, you know, beneath you or somehow disconnected from you. Uh, and it's not pointless to engage in that stuff. That stuff is precisely where the decisions at the end of the day do or don't get made. And it's citizenship. It is. And it's patriotism. It is. And it's, look, again, all we are, it's, I, I used the word ecosystem a moment ago, right? We can't focus obsessively only on one part of the ecosystem. I don't pretend that all of civic life is only about what happens in government only about what happens when elected bodies, whether a city council or a state legislature or the Congress of the United States, decides to do X or Y. But that sure is a big piece of it, and we may as well be fluent and literate in how you change that system. And if you don't like that system, how you bypass that system, right? Uh, but it's part, of the, it's part of the broader ecosystem, just like protest is, just like social norms and the narratives that we see in the media and in social media, uh, they matter too, right? 
Um, and so when you have an instance, you know, as you and I sit here, there was recently that, um, you know, instance in a, um, in a school where an African-American teenage girl right. um, got, you know, yanked and thrown to the floor and, and um, uh, you know, by a school cop. Um, you know, that stuff's been happening in this country for a long time. What's different in this moment is that we have the technology, A, to capture those moments, and B, to use those moments as catalytic organizing tools and as teachable moments, right? Uh, and we've got a responsibility uh, in every part of the ecosystem, whether you're a neighbor, whether you're a member of the media, whether you're an elected official, whether you're a voter, whether you are um, just somebody who pays attention uh, to find out what's our pathway in to help shape um, the future of that story. Because all of civic life, all of you know, civic power boils down to this simple question, who decides, right? Who decides? And it's better, I think, in general, to have a hand uh, in deciding than to be the one uh, about whom things are getting decided. I find that interesting that you say that about that particular incident because uh, I got to thinking about how many times when I was uh, either in elementary school or in junior high, of course we call it junior high, we didn't mm -hmm. call it middle school then, but also even in high school where uh, teachers would aggressively handle a student and manhandle a student. I had coaches that did the same thing, but we didn't have social media at the mm -hmm. time. We didn't have someone there that would snap a, a photo with a phone, a phone or, or take video of it, and, and how that has changed, and, and the shift in power there. Yeah. If you think about that. That is a huge shift in power, yeah. right? Um, uh, and it's, again, and it's gotta be coupled with understanding right. other traditional forms of power, right? Um, and again, that's not all on one entity. Back to Black Lives Matter. It's not all on Black Lives Matter, both to organize protest, shine a spotlight on injustice, and lobby, and get people elected. And you know, it's on everybody to do a, you know pieces of this. And uh, and this again, I don't want to overemphasize just progressive causes. I mean, if you think about um, the effectiveness of libertarian organizing that's going on in this country, and and the um, you know and the sustained political clout of the Tea Party. Um, uh, you know, they figured out coming out of their initial paroxysm of anger and uh, uh, and so forth, how to convert that anger and passion into organization and convert that organization into results in elections, right? Like it or not, the Tea Party has had disproportionate outsized influence in the Congress of the United States uh, and in state legislatures around this country because they were literate in power, right? I may or may not like the policies they advocate, but as somebody who studies and tries to promote the understanding of power, I have to tip my hat and say, you know what, there is stuff to be learned there from how they've done that. Would you tell folks that are involved with Black Lives Matter and that movement to take a look at what? Oh, the absolutely, party absolutely. Just and, and as understand there are, how that you is bet. power, and, and and there are folks uh, from the Tea Party right who have been. Uh, studying the civil rights movement, and they studied uh, the Black Power movement, and they studied Saul Alinsky, and they studied, uh, you know, d different progressive organizers and uh, activists uh, from years past and decades past. Uh, you know, I, I think you can't be a serious citizen uh, if you're only willing to learn from people who believe what you believe, right? I, I think there are lessons to be learned, and it's not just in a pure kind of combat sense of know thy enemy, right? Uh, and study the means of your enemy. Yes, there's some utility to that in politics too, but I just mean, um, 
look, I, I, I am left of center, right? I work for, I work for a Democrat. I, I am a Democrat. Uh, I'm a progressive. But uh, I read lots and lots of stuff from the right. I have lots and lots of people in my Twitter feed who are from the right. I try study closely uh, and have come to know, um, you know, people who've been organizers of the Tea Party and people who've been active in Freedom Works and other, you know, conservative movement organizations. Um, uh, because, uh, like I say, if you're going to take citizenship seriously, um, you got to get out of the echo chamber. Uh, and, and doing that won't make you suddenly lose your beliefs or lose your orientation. If anything, it will help sharpen why you believe what you believe, uh, but it will also enable you to uh, remember that we are in this diverse uh, community and part of what it means to be a citizen of this country is to know how to navigate that diversity. Citizen, Citizens University, uh, how is it evolving from when you made that shift from Guiding Lights to what it is now to where you want to take it? Yeah, well, Citizen University is, um, we, we do a few different programs. Um, you know, a, a big chunk of them are, broadly speaking, about learning and teaching about power. We've created content that is about civic power, and we're, we're, we're developing more. This is actually the topic of a, a new book I'm working on. Uh, but then there's a whole other uh, section of our work uh, that, in a sense, is about practicing what we preach by convening people, uh, by bringing together people um, from around the country, around, across the left and the right, um, all different subsectors of civic life, whether it's immigrant organizations, people working on racial justice, people working on veterans issues, people working on voting and democracy reform, people working on national service, whatever it might be, and pulling them together um, in different convenings. Every spring uh, in March at Seattle Center, uh, not too far from KCTS, we hold a national conference that brings together these folks uh, to learn and teach from one another, right? Uh, to, to learn from one another and teach one another. Um, and I think where we are headed as we evolve is just amplifying that kind of work, both through media product um, content, whether it's animated videos or uh, books or, um, you know, uh, filmed versions of some of the lessons and workshops that we uh, organize. Uh, that are coupled with face-to-face, because -face. I do believe face-to-face -face matters still, right? In fact, in an age of more and more technology and media, the premium that you get from face-to-face -face, uh, actually increases. Uh, I think we need that more now, we actually. Do. We do. Because you know? we are, uh, it's, it's easy to kind of tune yourself out. Totally. Uh, yeah. I mean, what I was saying earlier, it's yeah. super easy when you are wholly mediated just to filter in only people you agree with. Right or only and not even agree with politically, but only people from your profession, or only people from your ethnic group, or only people from your income class, or whatever it might be. Um, and face to you know, creating more face to face opportunities um, that are again, I, I keep saying it's not eat your vegetables. I want to create a spirit of joy. Right, this is about. Uh, we've got a project going in 2016 um, that's called the Joy of Voting, um, where we're going to be working in several cities around the country to revive what used to be in this country a very commonplace thing, which was around elections, you would have this robust, participatory, very creative, artistic culture of voting. You'd have street theater, street parades, open-air debates, uh, you know, uh, all of this kind of drama and art and creativity that would bring in different constituencies, whether it was trade groups or immigrant groups or neighborhood groups, uh, to participate in a face-to-face carnival-like joyful way around 
uh, issues in elections. And um, there's no good reason why we can't revive a bit of that. And, and so, citizens. So you're are, trying to make voting cool? Uh, it's not even cool. It's just we're trying to make the act of voting the endpoint of what is a larger and bigger set of joyful, creative, communal rituals. Um, you know, you think about here in Seattle, <clears throat> what it's like before a Sounders game right. or what it's like before a Seahawks game, right? Yeah. Um, that's not just soccer or football nerds talking about statistics and about the sport. It is street theater. It is parades. It is music. It's yeah. bands. It's Sounders, people... when you come marching down, they're band going and you've got the Seahawks folks in there. You bet, on their right? Drum, we, drum we, we are humans. We are animals who crave that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, it's in the best sense, kind of a constructive form of tribalism, right? <laughs> uh, which we are wired for. And I think we can harness a bit of that back into the spirit of democratic life too. Do, do you welcome uh, people from all political stripes into Citizens University? We do. Um, you know, we've had over the course of years, look, I, as I say, I'm progressive and a Democrat and, um, you know, truth be told, probably more of our speakers and attendees are from the left of center than from the right. Um, but we've certainly over the years had both attendees and speakers who run the gamut from Mark Meckler, who was the co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots, uh, Matt Kibbe, who uh, co-founded FreedomWorks, uh, the big Tea Party organization, people from the Reagan Library, people from the American Enterprise Institute, um, activists from uh, different conservative think tanks and organizations. Um, look, I think back to where you and I started in this conversation, this age that we're in right now where either out of frustration or entrepreneurial opportunity, you have a lot of citizens who are doing bottom-up organizing right now. That is true on the right as well as the left, right? Uh, and, it, it, and the more we can embrace that spirit, wherever it's coming from, I think the better. You know, an analogy I'll use back to sports, uh, I'm a baseball fanatic, right? Mm -hmm. I grew up in New York, and so I grew up a Yankee fan, which means also I grew up hating the Red Sox, right? Uh, and... <laughs> Uh, but one thing that both I and a Red Sox fan have in common is that we have both an underlying interest in and concern for uh, the health of the game. If the game itself is diseased or corrupt or distorted or unhealthy, um, that hurts both the Red Sox and the Yankees, right? Um, and so it's in our mutual interest, me and my fellow Yankee fans as well as Red Sox fans, uh, to make sure when the game is uh, unhealthy that we help revive it. I think that's exactly where we are in this country right now, right? There are people who are Democrats. There are people who are Republicans. Uh, they may have a tribal dislike of one another. They may never like to spend time in each other's company. But we're in a moment right now where we share an underlying interest uh, in restoring this, this game underneath us uh, back to a greater level of health, right? And, and that means reminding citizens how to exercise their citizen muscle again, how to advocate, how to organize, how to deal with the media, how to frame issues, how to have arguments, uh, how to negotiate, um, all these things that we've sort of let atrophy on both the left and the right. And so um, I wanna welcome anybody who's interested in rebuilding those muscles into the circle. Uh, before we close here, tell me a little bit about the book that you're working on now. You've uh, authored uh, Accidental Asian, you authored, as I mentioned, uh, Chinaman's Chance. Mm -hmm. uh, you uh, co-wrote with uh, Nick Hanauer, uh, a true patriot. Yep, and, and also one called The Gardens of Democracy. Right, that one as yeah. well, yes. Uh, new book? Yeah, so the new book uh, is going to be all about this topic you and I have been talking about, citizen power. Uh, 
and it grows in part out of the work I've been doing and describing. Um, it really struck me. Um, I gave a TED talk that was published in 2014 uh, on the topic of citizen power. Um, and, you know, it was a pretty good talk, but I was surprised yeah, I how it last night. Well, <laughs> I was surprised by how I mean, as you know, as okay as the talk was. It went viral in a way that I think wasn't even about the talk, right? I mean, as you and I sit here, it's about a million and a half people have viewed this talk around the, around the planet. And I continue to hear regularly from people around the planet who have seen the talk and want to connect some of these ideas about how you activate citizen power to their own community. Uh, that response is what made me realize I'm onto something deeper here, right? This, this yearning in this moment here. And it's not even just American, right? Uh, and so this book is going to be about anatomizing power. What are the forms that power takes? Money power, people power, ideas power, social norms power, state power, the power of violence. Um, uh, what are the laws that power follows, right? The, the ways that power compounds, the way that power operates, the way that power flows and is frozen into policy. Uh, but then also, what is the, in a sense, checklist of skills that you or I need to have in able to in order to be able to exercise power, right? Um, uh, how can you organize? How can you advocate? How can you, um, you know, become fluent in and literate in the forms of power so that you can actually practice it more effectively? That's, uh, that's going to be the focus of this book, and I'm going to spend the next, uh, the better part of the next year uh, writing it, and uh, it'll come out uh, sometime in the beginning, of, uh, the beginning of the next president's administration, actually, yeah. early 2017. So uh, when you get that done, then uh, hopefully we'll be still podcasting. You come back and we'll have another conversation about that book. We would love that. You got, it, you got a going. deal. All right. Uh, let me tell folks here that Citizen University, the national conference, is scheduled for March 18th and 19th, 2016. That's right here in Seattle. What, over at Seattle Center? At Seattle Center, yep. Okay. You can just find out more. Our website is just citizenuniversity.us. Right, and, and we're going to put more information, links to uh, the conference and also about Citizen University, more information about Eric Liu, all going to be on the KCTS 9 website. Thank you very much, Eric Liu, for being here, and thank you for listening to the KCTS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. I'm Enrique Cerna. We'll talk more later.